Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. And here we are on the darkling plain that the sage Matthew Arnold imagined, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. We wake in Memorial Day week 2022 in the land of assault weapons, a world of pandemic and climate breakdown, feeling we're living somewhere between the age of anxiety and the end times. We're in a test of spirit and soul, and some people turn to religion, others to poetry. Our guests are the philosopher Cornell West at Union Theological Seminary, who has styled himself a blues man in the ivory tower, and David Bromwich, Sterling Professor of English at Yale, ranging wide in recent books titled Moral Imagination, An American Breakdown. Cornell and David, you are my dream diagnosticians of the American condition in good times and bad. Can we hear you both, please, take an opening stab at naming this set of symptoms we're all of us feeling? Cornell? Well, one, to just say that we're so glad to be in dialogue with you, Brother Chris, and to be in dialogue with Brother Brown, which is one of the few great intellectuals of our time. I think it's very important to begin with the fact that we are a wretched species. We're wandrous and wretched, just as Sophocles says in the great Ode on Man. We're terrible, but at the same time, we've got a certain kind of magnanimity in terms of our potential. And therefore, when Beckett says that the tears of the world are a constant quantity, one begins, the other stops. Each generation has its deep forms of unhappiness. So we ought not to think that somehow in this particular moment, we are distinctively wrestling with forms of despair and tristitia and dread and disappointment and disenchantment. What is crucial about our moment is, and we're an American empire, Mm. high expectations, city on the hill, last hope of humankind, and what? Here comes the human condition and all of its hounds of hell of greed and hatred and fear and hypocrisy and the fact that the United States has a distinctive myth of the frontier, more regeneration through violence. And so, yes, in fact, violence is as American as apple pie. Would you take a crack at it, David Bromwich? By using the word empire, Cornell brought to our attention the fact that our worst violence is committed abroad, but it's our violence at home, whether on the basis of race or just individual lunatics running around. It's that that we're most used to talking about. Hmm. But we should talk more about the hundreds of thousands of killings we've inflicted abroad just in our own lifetimes. Chris, I thought you caught something by not giving it a singular name yourself, even though you want one from us and speaking instead, as you did, of a set of symptoms. Just taking it back only as far as, say, the election of Obama 2008 and what followed, you know, immediately the crazy birther conspiracy on the right, then the disappointment with Obama when having halfway pulled us out of Iraq and at least made noises about pulling back from Afghanistan, he brought us back into Libya and back into Syria and we're in the same old empire game with the other party, because we only have one party when it comes to foreign policy. And then, you know, the election of Trump, which seemed to 
cause a general nervous breakdown on the left and and among Democrats and made them feel extremely self-righteous about anything that was not Trump. All critical instincts sort of being left to go because we now know who the enemy is. Then the disgraceful manner of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, although I think that was the right thing to do and it was the most courageous single act of Biden's administration so far. And now we've got the war in Ukraine, back to old Russia, the old enemy, and a mm. kind of thoughtless unity for war, only this time it's not even our war. The like of which I haven't seen in my lifetime, and my first political awareness goes back to my marching in the anti-war movement in LA when I was 14, 15, 16 years old. Vietnam was nothing like this. Even the crazy, feverish mood of the U.S. leading up to in the first stages of the Iraq War, 2002 to 2004, was nothing like this in the kind of blanket of one kind of opinion allowed. And the fact that that opinion is in the form of dogmatic hatred of an old familiar enemy under a new aspect, Russia. Russia is supposed to be the dark, terrible other, and it's something that's somehow unchanged from the Middle Ages, through czarism, through Soviet communism. And even though that's gone, they're mm. still the same kind of enemy. So obviously what Putin did by invading Ukraine was criminal, terrible, and wrong. But we're not even able to talk about it in any sensible way. We just root for war and more mm. war. I mean, put together these string of circumstances. It's one kind of symptom always, perhaps. There is something like a collective nervous breakdown <laughs> that this country mm. is suffering. It's not just this country, as Cornell suggests. It's a condition of humanity, and it spreads faster than before because of social media and many other modern inventions. David Romberg, Cornell West, you both fingered empire as the root of this problem, which is a very, very interesting choice. We'll come back to that question of how domestic violence, these explosions of insane shootings, relate, if at all, to violence abroad. But before we get there, I'd love you both to sort of, as our wise men, tell us yours. What's the reading? What's the model in the past of what we're looking at today? And the writers who dealt with it. Whitman, Mark Twain, the great Melville, Cormac McCarthy, great authority on American violence, James Baldwin, by all means. Who are your wise folk? I don't think empire is the root of it. I think the root of it is the fears, anxieties, and insecurities of human beings in the face of inevitable death. So there's a existential source and the institutional manifestation is certainly imperial. So when Martin King says, for example, well, the bombs dropped in Vietnam land in Harlem. Mm. Well, he's not saying that empire is at the root. He's saying that empire is the fundamental institutional mechanism through which militarism, violence on innocent people, killing of people is what we have to come to terms with. So I don't want this issue of philosophical anthropology to get confused with just a political and economic one. There's something about we human beings. That's why Sophocles is as relevant now as ever. He wasn't dealing with the U.S. empire, a different historical moment. And the same would be true with, with Milton and with Samson. Why do you need the fortitude in the face of despair with all of the violence? Why do you need the patience? So that there's an intertwining of the human condition and this particular political moment. And that's something that I want to stress here. No, and I hear it, Cornell. I love the long view. But I also wonder, isn't there something rather particular about 
the American presence yes. today entirely different from when I got out of college more than 50 years ago? To come back to the word militarism, I think if you have to pick one ism to describe America that couldn't possibly be disputed, that's the one. And it's one we don't hear talked about openly very much. Sure don't. When I was growing up, you know, a decade or so after you, Chris, but still the 60s and Vietnam, one could think was a terrible aberration. We could come away from it. Crossing over the bridge of the Reagan years when there was no war, but a tremendous pride in this country as the strongest power on earth took place again. What we've seen is the militarization of this country as something uh, somehow essential to its sense of stability and well-being. Hmm. The military is the most trusted institution in the United States, even though there hasn't been a war that we could properly say was one we had our whole heart in fighting and that we won since 1945. So there's a bit of a mystery about that. It's a distraction. It's a projection. It's a way of avoiding another subject, a larger subject. But it's a major fact of our lives. And I mean, just the other day, somebody sent me a Face the Nation clip, five minutes long or so, of the uh, anchor of that show interviewing the CEO of Lockheed Martin hmm. about the wonderful modern weapons that they're proud of shipping to Ukraine now javelin missiles and so on. There were no follow-up questions. There was no sense of the reporter being in any way at a distance from the person she interviewed. I don't recall anything like this from any previous moment in American history where you get a weapons manufacturer interviewed in this adulatory manner just because he's sending weapons someplace. I don't even have any words for it, but it is something new in this moment, and yet the moment is characterized by a condition we've been living with for a long time without naming it. Cornell, I want to remember with you this long red stripe of violence in, in our story. I've been reading Gunfighter Nation, Richard Slotkin's huge history. Coach de Tocqueville, 1840, saying the magnificent image of the frontiersman is always flitting before the American's mind. 100 years later, the poet John Berryman wrote, it's time to see the frontiers as they are. Fiction, but a fiction meaning blood. Michael Hur thought Vietnam was where the Trail of Tears was headed all along. The removal of Native Americans from what became cotton fields, mid-19th century. So the history is unquestionably there. But speak of the particulars today. I think the Slotkin uh, magisterial trilogy that you're talking about is a highly appropriate starting place. And the reason why I say that is talking both about the myth of the frontier, but it's also acknowledging the coming together of the most commodified culture in the history of the world, the most militarized culture in the history of the world. But at the same time, it's under the cloak of a nationalism, which is the most powerful ideology of the modern world, that which people are willing to live and die for, flags. So when you get the American nationalism, and the commodification, the market-driven character, not just of the culture, but of the war profiteering and the arms industry that's also tied into the war industry and war profit-making activity. And in addition to that, you've got the ways in which the violence attending first with indigenous peoples, then with white working men and African mm. enslaved people and violence against women and gay brothers and lesbian sisters and the violence against Jews and 
Catholics and Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians, they get the coincidence of these layers. It doesn't leave a lot of space. This is one of the reasons why, for example, you might recall just a few years ago that California and Canada have roughly the same population. More Californians kill each other with knives and Canadians kill each other with anything, anything. Uh, That's cultural. That's psychic. That has to do with a particular kind of soul craft in the American empire, the morals and mores that de Tocqueville tried to highlight in his classic work. And violence is so much a part of that. It's what Blue Brother Hofstadter's mind in that last great essay of his on American violence with Richard Russell in 1970. What is it about this particular culture and empire where violence is so overwhelming? Coming up, the frontiersman in our story. Is that the American hero who's back to haunt us? This is Open Source with Cornell West and David Bromwich, public thinkers who draw on lifetimes in literature and moral reasoning. In this wall-to-wall quandary of a sort we don't remember, David, and cannot put a name on, who or what is it we can hold responsible? I think there's an element in this of modernity and modernity gone berserk, which hit us first, hit us hardest, and we go through it fastest. Speed and efficiency is part of the compulsion to do things and have them done and complete them fast. That's part of what fires up violence. This is a thought of Gandhi's in not only in Swaraj, but a good many of his writings of the early 20th century, that the need to complete an action, to do it fast, and then everything will be good. That's one of the great self-delusions of human beings. And he connected it with civilization in general, or perhaps with Western civilization. His wasn't a case about America in particular. But this is something you might have noticed in the rush to the Iraq war, a terrible mistake, as even now the president who led that rush has acknowledged in an aside. (laughs) Um, But remember the feeling, we have to do it now. We have to do it now and get those UN inspectors out. They're almost finished with their job and they haven't found anything yet, but get them out now because we're going to bomb. And the same feeling is there about how fast we have to ship the weapons without any accountability, without any oversight to Ukraine. Lots of weapons, $40 billion worth, and then another shipment, because we want to push them back fast. This is the time we're going to end things. That feeling of having to get to the end of your story and having the instrumentalities to do it with at your disposal, that's Mm -hmm. a very modern feeling, and it's most of all an American feeling because we got here first. I think it is a terrible mistake, and it's one that, you know, American dominance is deeply tied in with. But I don't think it's uniquely American. To go back to Cornell's original emphasis, it is just human, too, and it's terribly destructive. Everything you're both saying bears on this almost incredible contrast in our response to threats that really trouble us near and far. Joe Biden asks for $32 billion for the war in Ukraine. Congress raises him, without a question, to $40 billion, more than the Russian military budget for a year. And at the same time, we have these incredible, modern, now almost regular gun massacres, Uvalde, Texas, after Buffalo, and we cannot find either the time or the money to do anything about it. The Onion magazine has a headline ready for every one of these shootings. The headline is, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. It works for Boulder, it works for Atlanta, it works for Buffalo, 
Uvalde, there's something peculiarly and weirdly American, is it not? Yes and no. Yes and no. It's not peculiarly American when you look at the neo-fascist escalation around the world, be it in India, be it in Hungary, be it in the United States. And in Ukraine. And Ukraine as well. The crucial point here is that there are ways in which our understanding of our own historical moment accents its specificities, but there's also some very deep continuities and elective affinities that are connected to the past. That's why neo-fascism is very important. And when you talk about the public face of the dominant hound of hell that Howard Thurman talked about, which Mm. is hatred, you're going to get white supremacy in the United States. That's when you really begin to talk about certain distinctive features of the United States, right? The attitude toward these African peoples, these indigenous peoples, these brown peoples, these Asians, and so forth. And then in addition to that, you're going to say, well, and this to me is the most important question is what are the ways in which people are fortified in order to come to terms with the nihilism, the commodification and the faulty nationalism so that we don't become so preoccupied with what we're fighting against that we don't look at what kinds of forms of fortification we have. And that for me is crucial. One of the distinctive features of American culture these days is that we don't take fortitude seriously. Magnanimity and patience, a whole lot of different attributes of it. But what kind of armor, the sixth chapter of Ephesians, what kind of equipment, existentially, culturally, do we have to deal with despair, hatred, greed, and so forth? And if your armor is weak and feeble, then the nihilism is going to be shot through your whole soul and you're going to reinforce the same violence that you claim to be fighting against. Back to Gandhi's point, back to Martin King's point, back to Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's point. And and our fortitude and our our forms of fortitude are very, very weak these days. Cornell, I wish you would say a word more about magnanimity, a word you just used, to have a large soul and a generous soul even to your enemy. It's not a Christian concept or word, but it fits in with some of those other virtues you're talking about. We utterly lack that in our domestic politics, in our even local politics and confrontations about small issues and small accusations. But on the larger scene in international politics, when have we seen an American leader call foreign leaders by so many names as ours do with such self-righteousness in recent years? And it's not just this man, Biden. It's Trump, too. And it's Obama to some extent as well. Um, A real lack of magnanimity. I'll just give the example I know is in the Republic, which is that the magnanimous soldier is the one who does not strip the corpses of the enemy of their trophies, weapons, etc., but leaves them to that extent of dignity. But there's such a thing as magnanimity to a living person as well as to a dead. It's strangely Mm -hmm. missing, not only in conduct, but in the tone of voice people adopt. I know... Cornell West has co-taught with professors in the various institutions he's worked at who are on an opposite side or a very different side of things politically. I have done a little bit of that, and I have been in contact with such people and in conversation with them. I notice in academic life that that's a shrinking minority of people who are willing to do such things, who are willing to you know, talk to people whose views you know are different from yours, but whom you have reason to respect 
their intelligence, certain qualities of them, and so on. Let's just say their honesty, which in my experience is rarer than intelligence in any case. There's a lack of charity and a lack of magnanimity there that's come into our bloodstream, as it were. Gentlemen, I'm hearing the great mother of American studies, Constance Rourke, in all this shooting news, home and abroad. It's about the Davy Crockett American stereotype gone bad, the frontiersman with a rifle. In Constance Rourke's meditations on us Americans, and she's a bit of a, a cult figure now in American studies, the gunslinger was one of three deep models of American role-playing men. The Yankee peddler was one. The Negro minstrel was a third. All of them in the context of American humor, pop culture. But I think, could we be looking at the nightmare version of the frontiersman in modern times, in which the NRA has taken us hostage with a myth of the frontier, the self-reliant Emersonian nonconformist has been reduced and hardened into the armed citizen on alert to defend his family and his property, the writer John Gantz puts forth the observation that Uncle Sam, in his resting state, is a frontiersman, not a constitutionalist. Does that tell us anything? The frontiersman has gone nuts on us? <laughs> you could say that about you know later incarnations of the Western hero as the cop gone rogue to do righteous deeds, like Clint Eastwood in those early sort of Dirty Harry movies. In the mass killings that are so recent now, I'm not sure we have anything that needs more complex description than that these are people who are truly insane, and it's something about the culture has helped to drive them insane. Those are just my short-winded thoughts. Are they picking up on a, on a myth, though, David? Well, they are using, at least the one in Buffalo was using, you know, neo-Nazi literature online, easily available, and convinced himself that that could be a cause for the thing he wanted to do. But I don't have any generalization that I can believe in very thoroughly about these killings. I think most of all, I mean, human beings are imitative creatures. That's one of the sad facts about us. If somebody, yeah, if somebody says something, another person will say it. And if five people say it, it becomes all the more easy to repeat it thoughtlessly. And unfortunately, this is true of deeds as well, deeds which can't be revoked or retracted. It's one of the reasons, as an English teacher, you know, I tell my students to try and avoid cliches. Why? Well, cliches makes it all go down easier. People have seen those phrases before. But it means you're short-circuiting thought. And if you try to say it in your own way, in words you haven't quite heard before, you might have a chance of getting in touch with what you really think. The mm. same is true of action. And I'm afraid, you know, I'm a Platonist to the core in believing that images are the greatest seduction of all. And people go online and listen and look at previous images. And in volume, these are seductive and they become copycats. And when you have mass murder as an occasion for copycat action, you're in dreadful trouble. Um, that doesn't give you any American myth or psychological depth on it, but I think that's one of the things happening. Mm. You see, but Brother Chris, I proceed on the notion, though, that most of human history is the history of hatred and greed and fear and domination and exploitation and subjugation. And there's these marvelous moments, Kairos moments of interruption. And so when we think of mass murder, you see, I don't put the emphasis simply on the killer. 
I put the emphasis on the fortitude of the family in grace and dignity responding to the criminality, responding to the murder. So when you look at a Ruth Whitfield, when you look at Brother Aaron in Buffalo, you look at Sister Geraldine family, what do you see? Well, see, that's where the crucial issue of response, and this is where, this is why Albert Murray picks up on Roy's notion of the hero, but for it's the blues man, it's the blues woman. In the face of catastrophe, in the face of hatred, here comes a flexible, fluid, protean figure who is responding with a variety of different ways, grounded in a fortitude. It's almost like Milton's uh, Samson. Mm. He embodies a fortitude. So that it's the patience on the one hand, but it's also the bravery on here. It goes all the way back to Cicero. Bravery in the face of the struggle and a patience in the face of the adversity. How do you sustain your forbearance? How do you sustain your endurance? How do you sustain your stamina? I mean, that's Chekhovian to the core. All we got is endurance and perseverance and stamina, period. That's all we got to mm. fall back on. What kind of love and compassion will we hold on to in the midst of what is coming at us, Samson? And he says, follow me. What my Quincy Institute collaborators want to hear is this link between violence abroad and violence inside the United States. Have we connected the frontiersmen at home and at war abroad? Well, we haven't talked about it recently, but I think that that was an intuition Seymour Hirsch had in his early New Yorker articles on the Abu Ghraib torture and interviews that he did after that, that all this is going to come home. And of course, we did see it come home in the mass shootings that were so startling in the 70s after the Vietnam War and the, the craziness of some of the returned veterans. This all gets allegorized and deflected in a, a powerful but wicked movie like Taxi Driver. But, you know, the more considerable American works of our, of our time, I think, are very aware of this. Another that comes to mind is the novel, begins in Vietnam and ends in a commune in the Southwest, I believe, called Dog Soldiers by Robert Stone. So I think, you know, people with, what to say, active sensibility have been aware that what goes around comes around, comes back. Uh, and we act as if, you know, just give the veterans hospitals a little, you know, larger appropriations and everything will be okay. Again, that's the quick solution. The way out is to stop sending troops, arms, and wars abroad, to try to live without war. And that effort hasn't been made in earnest. It just hasn't been. Back to Martin Luther King, you know, not only is injustice anywhere, injustice everywhere, but violence anywhere comes to haunt other places than its starting point. It's just a fact. William Appleman Williams tried to talk about the American way as a way of empire and then making the connection between what's happening domestically and what's happening internationally. That was a particular intellectual moment that was lost. But this internal external connection of militarism abroad and, and militarism at home is very real. It's not just in terms of black and white, but it's gender too. I mean, you notice most of these fellow citizens are men. It's not the sisters of all colors who are involved in this kind of fallow-centric, vicious attack on innocent people in order to feel as if they've got some moral regeneration because of killing people. On this matter of language, we did a program last week with veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and it was kind of astonishing how differently they speak. They're almost out of another era of candor, realism, 
self-presentation without bravado. They'd seen what they saw. They had a lot of time to make up their judgments. They speak very, very clearly without anxiety or apology. And I'm thinking, where did that tone, the American tone of voice, go? There's nothing like it in the political discourse we hear from Washington, especially Congress, but even Joe Biden, in terms of straightforward American talk. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a wonderful question. It's a wonderful question. It's what uh, Whitman called aplomb, um, <laughs> to be able to, to receive from someone else with aplomb. And I suppose the counterpart to it would be to speak with candor, which means a supposition of kindness, but also openness, be completely honest with people. And I think what's been dripped into or drummed into K through 12 kids, both prep school kids and in public school now too, is an idea of you've got to be inoffensive. Please don't say anything that might offend anyone, even potentially. And what surprises people is also a kind of offense. So don't try to surprise people either. Just try to be, you know, normal. I was raised in a, let's say, progressive family and sent to the UCLA lab school, a Deweyan school. So we had a different ethic there. But I mean, the idea of just speaking politely and taking your contemporaries seriously needn't involve that degree of cautiousness and quietness and holding back. And I think what you're hearing from the returned soldiers is something of that old American candor and aplomb, but it certainly doesn't have many embodiments on the public scene in America, either academic or, or popular culture. But see, and that's one of the reasons why Brother Bromwich is so crucial. For me, the juxtaposition of candor with can't. And among our professional managerial class, you get professionalized can't and cliche and platitude and jargon that is conformist, that is complacent, and even when it's leftist in gesture, it's so narrow and too often dogmatic that it's not embracing a wholesale robust conversation across the board. So it's no accident that our dear brother Bromwich, leftist that he is, is the greatest mind on Edmund Burke, who's the greatest conservative of his day. How rare that is. Why? Because it's cutting through the professionalized cant and platitude and cliche and saying, well, there's some issues here that we have to seriously come to terms with wrestling what it means to be human, even as we have ideological and political disagreements. One of the hardest things to talk about, of course, in America, and this has been true forever in America, because we're the first, we and Britain and then just us, the first sort of whole length capitalist country in the world. And the first, you know, very broad middle class country in the world where there's lots of room for improvisation within the middle class. But money matters so much in a culture where you don't have status, received status, entitlement and so on as part of the going manners of the society. And money is what we find most impossible to talk about in this country. Hmm. How much difference money can make. We, it's much easier almost addictive in recent years to talk about gender or talk about race in all sorts of variations about gender and race. I mean, there'd be 10 people willing to open up to you about their brilliant new thoughts about gender and race for anyone who will speak to you honestly about money, especially rich people. That's true. Coming up, more on this matter of the American language, American speech. This is Open Source. 
Cornel West, author of Race Matters and Democracy Matters, is a professor at the Union Theological Seminary in New York. David Bromwich, author of American Breakdown and How Words Make Things Happen, is a sterling professor of English at Yale. What has happened, David Bromwich, to our vernacular? We're proud of the American sound and of what Hemingway called the good old built-in shockproof stuff detector. <laughs> when did our language, our vocabulary, our syntax go, go inadequate, go almost meaningless, go almost unlistenable? And why? I, I don't know. I do think that the spoken voice is a check if you're speaking for yourself and to a friend as a check on many kinds of inauthenticity. And, and what I tell my students who tend to speak better in a less cliche-ridden way and more honestly than they write um, is test, you know, test the sentences on your ear. If they sound all right, if they don't make you sputter into laughter at your own pomposity, <laughs> maybe there's something right about them. I do think that online chatter, tweets, Snapchat, I don't even know the names of all these entities, but the way, the fact that you can get rapid opinions out very fast and, and without much reflection, and that people write much the way they tweet now, and you know, speaking with the kind of carelessness that they might use with an old friend in a tired phone conversation. I mean, I think that's become a new standard of slackness. Mm. It's mm. relaxed, all right. But it, uh, when, it, when it's put into circulation as the content of something that's supposed to be thought, it's a degradation. Uh, you, take a, you take a journalist, I guess he's probably the most influential journalist in America who has a column, Thomas Friedman. Right. He's just a, a disgracefully bad writer, um, sentence by sentence. And it, it happened in this way, being more and more a creature of the culture. But I think you have to stand outside. Uh, to some extent, and learn to listen to yourself. And that's what good writers have always done. And I think it's what good speakers have done too. We really need an example, more than one example, of good public speakers. Even in political life, we should have more than we do. I admired Bernie Sanders for both of his campaigns, partly because he had that kind of discipline in his talk, not to the highest possible degree, but more than other people did. Uh, I regret very much that he voted for this $40 billion <laughs> to go to Ukraine. But just one quick point about Parhesia, about fearless speech and plain speech and frank speech and unintimidated speech, the kind of speech you get into Malcolm X or, uh, or uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, that's just clear, crystal, cuts through all of the jargon. And it's like a blues woman or a jazz man, right? It's a voice, it's not an echo. It's lift every voice. That's the anthem of black folks, not lift every echo. They're not extensions of an echo chamber. <laughs> They're voices that have to do with wrestling with the dark sides of your own soul and then transfiguring it into a sonic expression. So it is with eloquence. And Cicero and Quintilian talked about wisdom speaking comes from soul shaping, soul wrestling. And when you don't have soul wrestling going on, you're going to get all kind of jargon-ridden discourses that make people feel so smart with very little wisdom taking place. And it becomes accommodating to the status quo. And our professional managerial elites specialize in being accommodated to the status quo as they're very smart and more and more very rich. That's brilliant. Another element is that the elite that we're speaking of has become more and more homogeneous. There was a difference, and the difference was Absolutely. not all for the not all for the bad, and it wasn't a difference of high to low. 
there was a difference between the way a responsible politician spoke, the way a responsible corporate head spoke, the way the head of a football team spoke, the way the head of a humanities department spoke, uh, the way the head of a network spoke. They had different jobs, different functions, virtues internal to their practices that we could recognize. These people all now come from the same milieu and they speak all alike. That's true. The radio rule would be put them on the air and people will know the difference, David. Don't let them see them. The television picture doesn't help, but people read voices even for evolutionary reasons, back on the plains of East Africa. They had to trust what they were hearing, and they can tell. They can read character. Maybe so. That's a, that's a radio <laughs> c- conceit. <laughs> uh, you know, what Horatio says to Hamlet uh, about the uh, ghost, so have I heard and do in part believe it. <laughs> <laughs> the political writer Sam Moyne, your colleague at Yale, David, says that we need a cultural shift toward peace, the peace cause that has been fashionable at times in my life in this country, but has hardly been represented or even voiced around Ukraine and the confrontation with Russia. Something else has risen to the fore to leap a little bit, but it's the dream of regeneration through violence. It feels so frontier, yet it's very much alive in 2022. How do we think again about peace? A fast answer about uh, American mass culture opinion concerning this war, that is to say, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Ukrainian resistance to the invasion, and the all-out American support of Ukraine and refusal of any initiative towards negotiation to end the suffering. That stems very largely from people being captive to nostalgia for a good war. Um, Americans can look back and say, we've had two good wars in more than two centuries. That's not most of our wars. But there was the Civil War and there was the Second World War in many people's minds. And the Second World War is almost within living memory. It's within memory of things your grandparents told you and so on. And you get these analogies of the sellout in Munich or, you know, resisting Hitler in Poland. It's some of the same people, that is to say, descendants of the same people who preach to America the doctrine of regain your purity by defending us. It is Polish people. It is the descendants of Churchill and so on. But I think we have to resist becoming captives of that myth very strongly. You know, everything is what it is and not another thing. This is the America that committed Vietnam and Iraq and Libya and Syria. It's not the America that fought World War II, or it's not one thing more than the other. There's also nostalgia for the Cold War. And lo and behold, we have an enemy with the same name. It's called Russia. We can't think as long as our thinking goes in these grooves. You know, I don't think it's a myth of regeneration by violence. After all, so far, this is just other people's violence. But it's self-deluded because we're leaving out of the calculus nuclear war. And we're also refusing to think about the amount of suffering that is inflicted on people by any war. So the American role in this seems to me, to repeat the word, astonishingly thoughtless and from the top down, from the media top, from the political top, from the corporate top, and yet it's created a sort of general opinion that's hard to penetrate. That is eloquently put, but I gotta say, I don't know anybody 
who's feeding a nostalgia for a good war, not even an editorial writer. Oh, I can tell you one, Bill de Blasio. He wrote it that way, uh, an editorial in the news in Newsweek. It actually may have used the word regenerate. It certainly used the metaphor. We can make ourselves whole again. We can cure ourselves by having a war which finally justifies our understanding of who we are as a people. Ooh. I think that's that's a very strong undercurrent, whether spoken or not. Where, Cornell, do you sense that nostalgia for war? Yes, for confronting the Russians, even Hillary Clinton. We, we, we took that for granted with her, and we heard it a number of times. But... Nostalgia for a good war? Yeah, I think this sense that this war can bring us together as Americans and therefore be a good war to constitute glue. Yes, I, I hear that. But I think what Brother Bromwich is saying is so so crucial here. It reminds me of the letter of Henry James to Robert Louis Stevenson when he says, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing, that we can't see the hypocrisy. We can't see the need to bring moral condemnation of any invasion and occupation. It could be Iraq, it could be Ukraine, it could be West Bank Gaza, it could be Tibet, it could be Kashmir. These are moral and spiritual issues that are lost when you have this very narrow and truncated discourse about good wars and Manichaean perspectives in terms of good on one side and the bad on the other. And it's a sign of a very deep spiritual decay. And that's why the Socratic legacy of Athens the prophetic legacy of Jerusalem that says what? Never be surprised by evil, never be paralyzed by despair. Well, our dear brother Jeff Stout, who we both love and respect so deeply, hope is not a feeling, it's a virtue. Meaning what? It's a way of being in the world, it's not your mood. So Americans so often live lives at the level of feeling, how we feel about something. Oh, man. So what, feel about. what kind of human being are you in terms of courage and fortitude and magnanimity and sacrifice and service to the least of these? How does a big, diverse country wake up? And what in the world do we in media do to help the process? You know, a show like yours and some other podcasts and radio broadcasts that I know about, you know, perform a good function, but far too few representatives of the media are willing to do that. And all the usual sources that most of my pretty well-informed and intelligent friends and colleagues go to, that you could formerly rely on at least to read between the lines of the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, the old networks, NPR. You can't go to them anymore. The opinion is too uniform. It's too like the corporate and mainstream political opinion. I mean, I do think there are alternative sources with your Quincy Institute connection, you know, responsible statecraft is a is an online source that's of some interest. And I go to Consortium News and Antiwar.com and Counterpunch and occasionally investigative pieces by Aaron Mate at Gray Zone or yeah, Real good man. Politics. Levka Lincoln's articles on Ukraine and neo-fascism in Ukraine that have been published in The Nation. He's a Ukrainian Jew. And even the recent interviews at a, the rate of about one a week uh, with Noam Chomsky at Truth have been, you know, up to his standard of uh, intelligence and rationality. And, you know, this is a man of 94. So that gives me strength just to think about. There are sources like this, but what is flooding people's sensoria is a, a different kind of information with, with media and politics united as never before. Cornell? 
Well, I mean, I just thank God for Amy for, at uh, Democracy Now. I think that's a very important site to keep track of. Same with you, Brother Chris Hedges and some of the others who, uh, who are making a difference in terms of trying to, to keep the, the discourse uh, a robust one. But important to keep in mind, that's always in some way been the case. I mean, the conformity of the mainstream, in this case, centrist neoliberals, in this case, centrist neoliberal uh, imperialists, uh, they, they tend to be predominant. And so we just have to always call in both word and deed for spiritual, moral, and political renaissance. That those, those are the moments of interruption. That's what pushes back the conformity. That's what pushes back the, the cowardliness. That's what pushes back the blindness. And we, we never should do it in a self-righteous way because we all of us have our own blind spots. You know, the splinter in one's eye is the biggest magnifying glass, says Adorno, and he's right about that. But all we have are simply exemplars, exemplary institutions, exemplary individuals, exemplary social movements, and exemplary memories that keep alive the best of the past in light of a present that's always dim. It's always grim. I, look, I can't think of a historical moment in the history of the species where God would say, this is good. I just want to say, I'm tempted to say things in my lifetime have never been worse, but I don't want to come across as someone who's treating hope as just a mood. So I won't say it like that. Um, But I've just, you know, I've been reading Thomas Hardy, the biography he ghost wrote under his second wife's name called The Life of Thomas Hardy. And there's some wonderful sentences in there where he both asserts and denies his unbelief. He says, I don't, it's not really that I fail to believe in God, but I think uh, maybe it's that he was working with poor materials and didn't get quite the results he needed. <laughs> so we've got to help the best we can. <laughs> you remember in The Return of the Natives, the beautiful description of the heath, and then the chapter, Here Comes Trouble, Human yeah. Beings. The presence of human beings. I mean, that's Thomas Hardy to the core right there. But 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 he's saying confront the worst in order for us to be the best. Yeah. So even his pessimism it doesn't go all the way down. He's got fortitude too. Early in my own reporting life, I covered George McGovern's slow, steady rise to the Democratic nomination in 1972 against Hubert Humphrey and the Ed Muskies of the world. It was precisely the word that I think vast numbers of Americans would love to hear today, come home, America, end this war in Vietnam. And he didn't beat Richard Nixon, but uh, he, he was revered for the rest of his life. A real American hero. I'm wondering, where's that stirring? Enough of the war stuff. We've got a country to repair. That gets you back to the problem about the frontier, which is that we don't want it to end, and there's nowhere else for it to go but the rest of the world. But trying to take the frontier around the rest of the world is going to go against any effort to curb climate disruption. I mean, there's there's a cause that embraces all other causes, but even the Democratic Party, the only party that acknowledges the reality of it, only puts it on a list of five or six items and it can never come first. So, I mean, there is this come home has a new relevance for resolving our own understanding of what to do about the greatest problems that confront us at home, and there are problems about the environment and about the very world that we live in. Cornell, bring us home. David Bromwich calls it a collective nervous breakdown, and I think an awful lot of people on, with different kinds of politics would fess up, yeah, that's, that's what it feels like to me. Who's the doctor to treat a collective nervous breakdown? 
Well, you remember what Brother Martin said when he said, are we integrating into a burning house? And if so, we've got to be firemen and firewomen. So the question becomes, the collective breakdown, absolutely. The question is what kind of response, you see, what kind of fight back? See, all the talk about breakdown, domination, where's the resilience? Where's the resistance? Where's the friendships? Where's the communities? Where's the collectivities? Where's the struggles? And, and so we have to continually view this as balance of forces. And right sometimes at the darkest moment, you can see the stars. We missed out on some of those stars. North Star, Frederick Douglass saw it. You said, Brother Bromwich is your North Star. Yes, what a voice, what an exemplar. There's other North Stars too. So in that sense, fortitude again holding on for dear life. And it could be Chekhov, it could be Milton, it could be Louis Armstrong, it could be Stephen Sondheim, it could be Kendrick Lamar. I get some feeling of hopefulness on a small scale when I put myself into my work and feel that the work is is good for maybe someone besides myself. And I think different people have different kinds of work to do. And it should connect with other people. It shouldn't be, you know, an utterly solitary accomplishment. But the nature of the work may be that it's something you do in solitude. Maybe that's one of the meanings uh, Voltaire had in mind when he made the last line of Candide, you know, we must cultivate our gardens. He didn't mean, uh, you know, the garden as an ivory tower, but you got vegetables there and maybe you'll give some of your vegetables to your neighbor in a time of blight. I want to thank you both for real American voices and real American thinking. What a wonderful way to approach the summer. Thank you, Cornell West. Thank you, David Bromwich. This felt real. We thank you, Brother Chris. Chris, it, w- it was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org. And check out their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of independent podcasts, including Iconography. It's a tour of the icons that define our sense of a place from the host Charles Gustine. Check out Iconography's 2019 episode about how the state of New Hampshire is dealing with the collapse of one of its prime tourist attractions, the old man in the mountain. You can find that episode at iconographypodcast.com. And check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org.